Well, I'll tell you what, one thing is for certain, we need jobs that come with recess. Here we go. Welcome to Political Playlist. All right, are we ready, guys? Happy hour. Happy hour. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Political Playlist Happy Hour. Did you miss our beautiful faces? And voices. Yeah, I'm Michael Kristoff. How the heck are you? I'm Anna Muskie Goldwyn, and I'm great. And I'm Anthony Barquette, and I am hanging on by a thread. <laughs> well, that is wonderful. Thank God we have drinks in hand. Uh, cheers, cheers, everybody. What are we having today? I got a Manhattan. I have a rosé. <clears throat> I'm taking the day off of drinking. Oh, wow. Anthony's in rough shape. Wow. So obviously you have not heard our sexy, sultry voices in a couple of weeks now. We decided to take a little fun recess, mirrored, of course, alongside Congress. And it turns out that a lot of stuff still happened. Um, Anna, what did we miss? I kind of tuned out. I don't know about Anthony definitely tuned out. Yeah, you're just another one of those young people yeah. saying, oh, I don't read the news anymore. Yep, it's too stressful. We're changing that, people. We're changing yeah. that. You don't need to read all of it. You just need to know some of it. So sort of the biggest, I would say, item over the summer has been that Biden sort of miraculously has managed to get a lot of legislation signed into law via Democratic Senate and Democratic House. Um, the biggest bill... Signing into law, of course, being the Inflation Reduction Act, which people have probably heard about. The Democrats say that this lowers prescription drug costs. It addresses global warming. It raises taxes on corporations and addresses the deficit. Republicans, none of whom voted for this, um, say that it's too expensive and that the taxes will actually hurt small businesses and Main Street America. The second piece of legislation being the PACT Act, which did have bipartisan support. And you might remember a little bit of drama happening with that when Jon Stewart sort of um, laid into some Republicans who did not vote for the first, the sort of middle version of the bill before there was some stuff written that appeased them. And then they finally did. But this expands veterans care across the board. And the last being the CHIPS Act, which is probably the most obscure, but also potentially one of the most important, which jumpstarts the US semiconductor industry and provides loans and new investment in manufacturing of semiconductor chips, which is like super technical and crazy. Um, but I think the big picture thing here for people to know is that Democrats are banking on this as their key to midterm victories that maybe they didn't think they had a few months ago. Republicans who tend to be much better at cohesive messaging are doubling down on all of this as being too expensive, too leftist, too woke, all of the above, and are hoping that they can secure the House and Senate come the midterms. I think what is interesting about particularly the PACT Act is I think that Republicans sort of misplayed that one quite a bit. And it'll be interesting to see how that affects them in the midterms. You know, so much of these bills that you just spoke about passed so dividedly uh, along mm -hmm. party lines, with particularly within the House, the Senate less so in some instances. But, you know, I think that voting against a veteran bill such as that, you know, Jon Stewart really went so viral and caught, I think, a, a real kind of public uh, feeling and sentiment towards this. And I think that's going to be, that's going to come back to bite some Republicans. Well, we'll see, because to be fair, like, John Stewart made that big fuss as he should have 
And then there were like some things amended in the bills and then all those Republicans did end up voting for it. So it's sort of, again, this like complicated process. But the thing is the American people don't usually tune into the complicated process. They just see the result. So like I said, TBD. Um, Well, you know what I have missed? I have missed the guessing of the tweets. Which is shocking because you're so bad at it. I'm so bad at it, but I love it. Like it's... I think it's great because I don't, I, I feel like I get so lost on Twitter that it's so, there's so many things coming at me. So that, let's just remind people, we love guessing which politician in Congress under 45 years old has tweeted specific things because Twitter is frankly where politics happens, whether you like yep. it or not. So True. we're diving into these 76 lawmakers who we've gotten to know so well, and we hope that you've tagged along with us and gotten to know kind of well too. Uh, Anthony, you want to lead us off here? Sure. Everyone can just see how difficult of a time Anthony is having today. (laughs) Uh, And let me just, let me just guess right away. August Pfluger. (laughs) (laughs) Did I win? Inside jokes. Inside jokes. Well, I love going first. So um, here we go. Everyone, no matter where they fall on the gender spectrum, should be able to compete in sports as their authentic self. We have a long way to go to make sports truly inclusive, but I'm so proud of the non-binary athletes leading the charge for change. Okay. I have well, a we guess. We know it's not a Republican. Definitely not a Republican. <laughs> and not August Fluger. And not, not August, August Fluger. Therefore not Someone August very Fluger. left. I'm going to guess Sarah Jacobs because she has a trans brother. Michael? Interesting. Uh, this doesn't feel that far left. I feel like it's a, I feel like it's a, like a, well, I don't know. Jamal Bowman. Well, he's I so mean, far left. I know he's pretty this far one, Once again, yeah. confirms Anna's smarter than the both of us. Cause she uh-huh. you know, yeah. takes things. Is it Sarah? It is Sarah Jacobs. Wow. Now, it's almost like you were fed the questions ahead of time. I have oh, never, never. Now, now I think this uh, one reason why I really picked that quote is especially I want to understand Anna's background because she's she was a college athlete. So I'm interested to hear her thoughts on this. But, you know, we've seen a lot of, I would say, um, these issues brought up in current events mm-hmm. uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, a male who was transitioning into a women's sport who ended up winning a variety of accolades. I think it was the first uh, one. She won the NCAAs, yeah. And, yeah, NCAA. And, um, you know, this is happening in a variety of sports. Now, on the, on the non-binary side and as it relates to this tweet, what was interesting was Sarah Jacobs had retweeted a article um, that was talking about how some of these races throughout the United States are starting to create divisions for non-binary runners mm-hmm. to compete in. Um, so, you know, that's starting to happen in a variety of states. Uh, it's happening in Seattle, like New York City Marathon introduced a non-binary category mm-hmm. last year. Chicago Marathon did as well. There were over 70 runners who registered in that um, in that division. Uh, the Boston Marathon is actually included in non-binary category in 2023. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. So, and there's 
a variety of other marathons that are talking yeah. about this in major cities. So wh- what are your guys' thoughts on this? I mean, I have a lot of thoughts because I've thought about this a lot. Um, as you said, I was Keep a college athlete. Mm-hmm. Keep it short. I will. I was a college athlete. And, you know, when this started becoming an issue, I tried to think of it in a couple different ways. The first way being I, I, as an individual support people deciding to live however they would like. And that doesn't bother me. It bothers some people. It doesn't bother me. I think when it comes to athletics, I actually didn't know about these non-binary categories, especially in some of these big races. I think that that actually is a good step forward because I think like everything else in the world, we have to evolve and give people places where they feel welcome. With that being said, and this was my final point, I do feel like when it comes to elite situations, whether that be college championships, professional sports, maybe even elite races like New York City, Boston Marathon, et cetera, there maybe there do have to be rules put in place. My general thought is I wish that this wasn't so much of a political issue because I think that I understand the government has to play a part in like regulating what some of these entities can do or can't do. But I do think that each of these races, schools, organizations like the NCAA or whatever should have panels discussing and talking to medical experts, psychological experts, all this kind of stuff to figure out what the best way to approach this is so that people in our country stop becoming the ping pong ball of an issue that doesn't necessarily need to be political, which maybe is a controversial opinion on my part. Yeah, I think the thing that is often lost here is the human element. Yeah. And I think that you're right. It's kind of sad that it's a become such a political football. Um, I think that it is interesting. Correct me if I'm wrong, Anthony, but it seems like there are kind of three ideas or positions as to where trans athletes should fall in competition. There's the side that says they shouldn't compete. A trans woman should not compete with other binary women. Uh, And, you know, there's this middle ground of we should have its own category. And then obviously the other side being they should compete as they see themselves and identify. Is that kind of the, the three? Yeah, no, I absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, Anna probably is closest to this from being an athlete and, you know, unfortunately, Michael, you just, you're, you're not an athlete. Well, I played so. college lacrosse, but go on. No did, did way. You? you did. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I did not know yeah. that. Uh, yeah. All right. Folks, hello. Well, I just think there are people who know more about this than politicians, frankly, is my opinion. <laughs> And those people should be the ones who are stepping forward to help these organizations, universities, et cetera, figure out how to handle this. Because I don't think that these people should be sort of pawns in the Republican Democratic game. Okay, I'll go next. Are you guys ready? Let's do it. We're facing the impacts of a historic drought that's testing our traditions and ways of life. It's time for the Senate to pass my Water Data Act and Rio Grande Water Security Act to unlock the power of data, empower water managers, and support our communities. Rio Grande, so like Texas, Arizona. 
That's what August I was thinking. Luger? No, no, I'm not my guess. I take that back. I That's think what I was, I was. I was thinking David Valadeo from California, since he yep. mostly talks about water and everything he does. God, somebody in Florida, Brian Mast. Um. Okay, you're both off. Michael's very off. Damn Anthony's it. kind of off. It's a Democrat, actually. Oh, um. Okay. It's Melanie Stansbury, who is the only uh, person we cover from New Mexico, and. She's basically talking about how the Inflation Reduction Act does earmark $4 billion for drought reduction. Anthony lives in Colorado. Mike and I live in California. We are very familiar with the drought that is happening. It's really intense. It's really crazy. And I'm sure everyone has seen pictures. But what Melanie is saying is that due to even more water cuts now from all of the tributaries that the Colorado River feeds, we need more than $4 billion. And what I thought was really interesting about this quote is that Melanie actually has a history in environmental policy, environmental legislation. She worked for the White House on the Council on Environmental Quality and helped federal agencies. And she also was a staff of the Senate Committee for Energy and Natural Resources. So what her legislations purport to do, which have bipartisan support in the House, are to create um, a data framework that would standardize water data across the federal agencies. So modernizing the way that we talk about water in our government and the Water Security Act would develop a plan to address water security and the needs of the region and reauthorize especially water and irrigation going to um, Native American tribes. And the last, the Water Smart for Tribes Act would give the U.S. Secretary of the Interior the power to waive some of the costs that these tribes incur in getting water through their land. So I think what's interesting about you know, this drought conversation is that obviously we're suffering a drought in California. Uh, Utah, where I recently was, also has a major drought. Fireworks Mm -hmm. were canceled there because it's so bad. Obviously, you can go read about the Great Salt Lake and how the levels of that are at catastrophic low elements. And I was also just in Massachusetts, Okay, so these are three vastly different states. Massachusetts now has a serious drought regulation. Wow. So this idea that, you know, we just sort of write off desert climate regions like Southern California or New Mexico being, you know, oh, well, of course, there's like a drought there. But in my lush state of Massachusetts, I'm fine. That's actually couldn't be farther from the case. And I feel like this interconnectivity of drought and climate is not talked about enough among politicians and among just when we talk about climate. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think that especially this proposal, I mean, Anthony, I'm curious what you think about this because you work in like green energy and all, and sort of maybe understand like the technology of this a bit. I just think this idea of modernizing the way that our federal government measures water and shares water with different um, you know, organizations or whatever it is that are distributing um, the little water that we have. To me, that just seems so obvious, like modernize the grid kind of a thing. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I mean, water is extremely complicated, especially in a place like California. There's massive restrictions on some on, on water. I, I think from a general template, like people just need to be conservative and on how they use it. So my personal belief is 
I don't care if you want to water your grass every day, but like make sure that it's not running off the side and, and you're, yeah. you know, Whenever you're not I see using sprinklers on the sidewalk. I'm like, yeah, ah! make sure it's used. Yeah. And like, that's where I think people should be fine. Like if, if you're doing yeah. it, do it efficiently, you know, and make sure your system is not broken. Um, but I mean, we know being from California, a lot of people rip on the farmers, but California is also one of the States that produces some of the most produce Mm -hmm. that feeds the rest of the, the country, country yeah. and, and world. But what yeah. do you think about this idea of, before we move on, like of establishing a standardized data sharing across the federal government? Like, it seems like our federal government's just not paying attention to water and now we have none. I mean, I think it would, <laughs> I think, I think it would be amazing if, yeah. if they actually use the data. And, and by the way, there's these, the droughts are happening in Europe yeah. as well, where yeah. like parts of the Rhine are literally drying, are dried up this summer. Yeah. So and I was like, what is, a, how is that going to change, you know, tourism and yeah. whatnot over there? I think it's going to affect it heavily to say nothing of my son, Sarah. Um, but <laughs> what I will say is I have a question. Do we have like a technology czar in this country who is responsible for just all the data wrangling and like actually figuring out how to make like an app for government? I don't think so. And I Let's, feel we like follow it's up with on, this on next episode. Sure. But I just yeah. feel like right now it's in the hands of Congress. It's like Congress has to pass these bills that right. give federal agencies the resources to create more modernized frameworks. And that to me is what this water data act does. So if any, any Republican, or if Mitch McConnell is listening to this, Mitch. like take this bill up. I'm just curious, obviously it costs money. I'm sure that's why there's a lot of Republican opposition to it, but, sh but it is bipartisan. And to me, at least this one specific act of modernizing all of this feels like a no brainer. So, well, namaste. Right. Let me, let me send us home here, gang. Uh, okay. Ready? This will be a little bit of a giveaway. Here we go. Oh, God. Democrats are sicking the IRS on working Americans to pay for the largest Green New Deal spending spree in history. Jim Banks. God, you know. Am I right? I, I, this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. And it shouldn't be allowed to guess this first. This is, I, and I ripped up my notes and now I have nothing to go on. <laughs> But obviously, we're talking about the Inflation Reduction Act here. <laughs> and I just want to kind of set up a couple of things because I think there's an interesting argument going on within this discussion of this bill. And I think both sides are talking about are, are sort of seizing on two very different things, right? So what it purports to do, and according to CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, uh, this is going to be a debt reducer, a, a deficit reducer by about $100 billion, which sounds like a lot, but they're actually saying that's not really going to move the needle on inflation, which is kind of sad. But basically, this is an inflation reduction bill that is heavily investing in environment and tax breaks and incentives for creating new clean energy uh, technology. Uh, it's also tackling this issue of Medicare drug cost uh, negotiating, which is going to bring the price of drugs down. It's not actually limiting the drugs you have access to. 
And it is increasing the IRS by the tune of $125 billion. So this is- Can I ask a question about that? So, because, okay, I just feel like- what is the democratic argument behind increasing the IRS? Is it to get money back? It's to try to get more money to address the deficit. Basically. The idea, the idea is that this whole spending is going to cost, you know, in the neighborhood of 430 billion and we're going to pull 740 billion in revenue off of taxing. So various other means. This is where I I agree with less for for Medicare. Sure. This is where I agree with Jim Banks and his exclamation points. Um, because I feel like what part of this bill is saying to raise the tax on multi-billion dollar corporations. Correct. It's increasing the corporate tax. Sure. So that I feel like has been solid democratic messaging for a long time. They finally were able to get something done, even though I was reading a whole thing about Kirsten Cinema actually made them take out a part of that stipulation, which is interesting. Uh-huh. Um, but what I think is so frustrating to me about the IRS part is all of the really, really rich people and really, really rich companies, they get around the fucking IRS. They... Unless you're Donald Trump's CFO, but yes, go on. (laughs) Sure, but they don't. They don't ever get in those situations. I feel like what Republicans are messaging, and I think will resonate with people, is people who own like medium-sized successful businesses that are taking in a lot of money, but they're not people who can just like live, you know, in retirement forever. And those people either individually or their businesses are the things that these, you know, tens of thousands new IRS agents are going to target. I mean, at least in my experience of people who have been audited by the IRS, it's usually people of who are wealthy, but not like exorbitantly wealthy. Yeah. And I would also imagine businesses that are not Apple, but are successful. So yeah. I agree yeah. with Jim, maybe. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting because, you know, you look at the other elements of this, right? And there is so obviously a need to tackle our climate crisis, right? Yeah. And this bill, uh, the the estimations from the scientific community are that this bill is going to reduce emissions uh, by 40% of the 2005 levels by 2030, which is only 10% less than what Biden campaigned on. He pledged to reduce them by 50% in 2030. So one singular bill is going to hit almost that entire target and you know we have never seen a climate initiative uh, to this scale of investment before. And the question is, you know, is this a day late and a dollar short? Is this actually going to be effective? And you know, was this the only mechanism by which we could pass meaningful climate legislation? Mm. Yeah. That is the million dollar question or rather the billion dollar question. You if you're yes. getting yes. higher taxes. No. <laughs> yes. So there you have it, gang. Cheers, everybody. Just bye. bye. Bing. <laughs>